Check, check. this solo right now um the uh the show's actually uh coming along really nicely everything's coming along quite well uh got a couple of really really fun interviews coming up that are already in the can and uh getting ready to be released in the next couple weeks um and obviously we've been doing the patch notes and the no wall scroll and everything um and you'll see an after dark attached to this everything's still uh kind of coming up to speed but all you know getting back to normal after i was done um writing the book uh, the book draft. The book is still not quite done, but you'll hear more about it when it is. Um, but uh, I wanted to kind of break into this new way of thinking about uh, this year's production of, I don't know, I guess for lack of a better word, podcasts or or intellectual work or, or whatever. Um, I wanted to start thinking about this big problem or this big question I've had about games, particularly as they relate to um, something that I think a lot of people would call cultural criticism. Um, some people would call sort of like media theory. Uh, but really, and I'm hoping I can demystify it a little bit, basically games in terms of like uh, how we can talk about them without just doing the uh, the fan thing, right? The thing of, you know, um, everyone who's smart knows the video games are good and everyone who's dumb knows that they're bad, right? Like that kind of thing. Uh, these kind of arguments that happen a lot on Twitter, people, uh, you know, getting really upset in their various, um, I don't know, like the, the various sort of uh, circles they're in, their clicks. Um, how to think about this is actually sort of like an aesthetic question, which is something that this podcast's always tried to do. But I, I want to reframe it a little bit. Um, and then I kind of want to – I'm hoping to really make this a thing in the year. The last two episodes I've recorded, I've asked specifically about this question. Um, I'm hoping to get some old guests back to come on to talk about this in particular. Um, not just the ones you're used to. Obviously, Dia, Scott, um, Liv, of course, is, is on a lot. Um, uh, probably, you know, Deegan will be back. Uh, all sorts of people who have been on multiple times. But – uh, even people who have like longtime favorites or people that you might not even remember, I'd like to get everyone and anyone to come back and talk to me about this question because it's something that's really been preoccupying me. And I think it's a good way to sort of take the podcast into its next step, right? Um, not that anything's going to change, but that maybe we can intensify the discussion a little bit. So uh, with that said, uh, I want to get started. Okay. So something that has been on my mind during the past few months of senescence and book writing, uh, during COVID, during you know this terribly long winter, um, is the idea of cultural studies. Uh, so when I say cultural studies, I don't exactly mean the idea of studying culture, although that's part of it, uh, but specifically the academic discipline itself and the way that it developed. So if you haven't run into this before, cultural studies is like a field of study. Um, it, Less popular now than it was in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, um, but you still find a lot of people doing it. Um, you know, I don't know if you're going to find a department that does it, but maybe you will. Uh, it's popular in, in the academy for pretty obvious reasons, um, at least today. I'll go through the historical reasons, which are less obvious, but, you know, the the reason it's popular in the academy today is because you can kind of, like, 
you know, read comic books and write about them or look at something you really enjoy and, and write an academic paper about it. And so it's gotten this reputation as kind of like a lazy field of study, a, a cheap field of study. And I, I want to kind of interrogate that a little bit. Um, yeah, because like, and as I said, like we see all the time on Twitter, like these weird threads that dominate our attention for a single day before leaving our consciousness forever. So like the why Thor Ragnarok is anti-colonial or the every book you read in high school is trash threads, right? That basically exist so that people get, get mad at them or agree with them or quote tweet them or whatever, right? These threads have their origins in cultural studies and specifically in the monumental turn somewhere in the 1960s and 1970s in the academy when people started questioning why we read what we read in school and college. Now, this isn't just the academy, of course. This is like everywhere, right? People start questioning things. It's the sort of the, you know, you, any, any sort of um, uh, flashback of the 1960s that you see in any show, there's always, you know, like, it was a time of great questioning, or like people wondering, free love, all that stuff, right? Uh, to a degree, that's silly, I, sort of like, uh, you know, a, a, a haze over history. Um, on the other hand, there is a lot of questioning of uh, preconceived truths going on in the 1960s and 70s. It's just kind of a time for that. Um, and cultural studies is a big part of this. Um, and we'll see why. You know, I won't belabor this, I promise. But there are lots of people from John Guillory to Gayatri Spivak to Edward Said to beyond all those three who will tell you in better and more compelling strokes the history I'm gesturing towards here. But what the canon is and how people reacted to it probably needs saying as some context to our own weird cultural moment. Now, the canon, uh, we'll talk about what it is, but just as a quick definitional tool if anyone needs it, uh, the canon is basically like the accepted series of books that are important. Um, the books that we all know are important or canon of video games, the video games we all agree are important or canon of films, right? Canonicity is something that can occur in even the most trivial things. So what's your canonical set of uh, tweets to explain Twitter? What's your canonical set of, um, you know, uh, uh, Trump tweets to explain the last four years, right? Like that kind of thing. You can talk about canons in any given way, but what we're talking about here, at least in this early part of the episode, is the literary canon, right? Okay, so effectively, and I'm purposefully not going to go into reference text for this because good Lord, what do you come here for if not to get away from reference texts? The canon as we know it today was one half cultural memory and one half pedagogical tool for the British Empire. And when I mean British Empire, I mean the old British Empire. We're talking about the sun never sets on uh, the, the British Empire at its peak uh, of uh, horrible exploitation and uh, murder and crimes. The long list of texts from the Odyssey to roughly Matthew Arnold, Joseph Conrad, or Richard Kipling that made up the English canon was meant to be a story that the British could tell themselves about their cultural legacy, the rise of the perfect form of expression in the English author. This is what the canon resolves into. It's important to understand this. The reason people critique and try to change and uh, are attempting to sort of like rewrite the canon is because the canon as it is always goes back to this point that the British author is kind of the peak of, of, um, of uh, a, a kind of like expression, right? It also, coincidentally, was pretty useful in teaching people in the Aegis of their massive globe-spanning empire what they should value as British citizens. So not just a story about who the British are, right? Not just the cultural history of Britain, but by extension, a cultural history of a British subject, right? And, and subject is the term here because these are people who are conceived as 
people on uh, under under the British crown, but who do not have a say in the uh, the work at home. And obviously, this is something we think about as Americans, right? This is like the 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 story we're told in school about the Americans' relationship to the British, and it's not untrue. The America Americas were a colony uh, of the British, but. Uh, more so even when we're talking about like India, right? Like uh, India under the Raj, uh, you're talking about a group of people who are essentially dominated and told how to live and exact and act and raise their kids by the British, but are given, you know, no say in their home country. Like this is, this is like, you know, capital C old school colonization. Let's put it that way. Um, so, not only Americans, who relatively speaking were British subjects for far too brief uh, a time to really experience the full scope and effect of the canon. Um, obviously, you know, people read it, but you're talking about a period of time where education was not, uh, you know, standard. Uh, and also uh, a lot of the texts that became canonical weren't written yet. Um, but thousands of people in the British Empire, and as I said, particularly those under the Raj in India, were taught that the canon was not only an important set of texts – but the important set of texts, right? So this is a, an important distinction. We're not talking about the sort of uh, suggestion. This is like, this is, you know, the thing you read. If you're not reading this, then you're, you're you know, getting a bad education. You're not learning. You're not being civilized. The, the, the white man's burden isn't being uh, properly uh, handed off, right? Um, so in other words... The British used the canon to convey and compartmentalize a standard cultural history, which was given as rote to all subjects of the empire, along with Christianity and a love of weird vestigial monarchy, right? So God save the queen. The questions you all have now, rest assured, were questions the people who were getting these texts surely had as well. And here's the thing that's sort of like a, a personal hobby horse. Um, history is a way of making people in the fast past far less perceptive than they almost certainly were. Um, so, like, I'm sure more than one student of color or more than one Indian student, one student who was, you know, learning the canon in uh, a colonized place uh, far away from England uh, was wondering why every important novel, poem, play, et cetera, was written thousands of miles away on a couple of islands up north. Specifically, why none by people right from my country, right? I'm sure they were asking that same question. Did they get publicized for asking that question? Are there, you know, accounts of that question asked? Not nearly as many as, as there would be if we were talking about today. But, of course, the means of expression were far more difficult to deal with and, uh, and, and gain access to. Um, but ultimately, it's the hegemony of the situation, right? The, 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 the cultural hegemony, what we can call uh, the, the effect of the canon. It creates a cultural hegemony, which is to say the total cultural coverage and command. Kind of a um, hegemony is sort of understood as this um, uh, sort of like beyond consent or consented to, but sort of like in a state of uh, domination. So like consented to um, oppression or oppression that involves a sort of tacit consent that is always already given. So, I mean, think about like, in this case, you know, you're getting, you're consenting to the domination of the canon by being educated into the canon, but you also have no choice but to be educated within the canon. So you yourself are creating this culture. Uh, you are mimicking this culture uh, if you are taught under it, but also you're not allowed by fiat to learn anything else. So it's hegemonic because, yeah, there's some sort of like, quote unquote, consent attached to it. But in fact, it is this cultural sort of domination that uh, prefigures every sort of experience and uh, in interaction with um, art.
And it's this cultural hegemony that, like, of course, kept uh, a lot of people from asking questions. Obviously, some people did. But it kept it being sort of natural that this was the canon. This, this was something of an un unconscious uh, sort of assertion by a lot of people that the canon was important, that the canon was untouchable. Um, and the cultural hegemony also, you know, made its way to the academy where everyone was taught in more or less the same books and, and everyone valued more or less the same books. And so, like, you know, no one was too excited to tear that down, right? Um, it made it untouchable in a certain place. And, and the academy is the one place anyone had the time or cachet to systematically abstract the idea of why we're reading these particular books and what that might mean. And think about it, like this hegemonic sort of focus means that you can never ask why, right? We'll get, well, you're going to get sick of hearing me say that, but you can never ask why these books are being read. Why these books, right? Why these particular texts, why this particular thing? It's just, it's, it, it is the way it is. What you may as well ask, like, why is the sun, you know, the color it is? Why is grass green? Why is the sky blue? Like the, it's, it's a fact of nature. And the only people who sort of have the ability and the sort of ability to be listened to who would think about that are already sort of benefiting from it in the academy or in the schools or in the government. So, you know, it mostly goes unspoken of. So it comes as no surprise then that the tipping point for the academy would be when the people who made it up got a bit more diversified. Still a work in progress, of course. So don't assume that sometime in 1970, the academy became uniquely diverse amongst all places in America. Um, but the white male Anglo-Saxon population of the academy became a little less homologous in the 1970s and especially into the 1980s. Um, now, before you sort of uh, report me to uh, your favorite post-left philosopher for using, um, uh, you know, a bunch of categories other than class, it also got more diversified in terms of class as well. But it's important that we understand that, you know, the actual diversification here, far less than, say, like a, a sort of Disney-fied diversification where um, you get a sort of token uh, represent representative figure, um, and then everyone, you know, dusts their hands off and say racism says racism is over. Um, this really is like a massive epistemic change for the academy because all of a sudden you get people who are invested in asking questions that are not asking the same questions as the people who made up the academy for the last you know four hundred years um, in in Europe and America. Uh, so you know, obviously this wasn't particularly compelling. To the people asking the questions, that is to say, the uh, the um, oh for God's sake. So this epistemic moment, combined with the incipience of postmodern theory, uh, a theory that questioned the ability of any text to mean consistently, uh, students, and in short order, those students who became professors of different genders, races, sexualities, and class statuses, uh, gave the canon its first major, major challenge. And the reason is exactly what you'd expect, uh, what those kids in 1830 learning about Shakespeare in India must have thought too, which is, why these texts exactly? Why, why are we bothering with these ones? Why are these always the ones we talk about? And I think it's important, just as a quick aside, that like this is mainly the lens that we should be looking at questions about, like, is Shakespeare worth teaching or something like that, right? People get very upset about such a question because Shakespeare is, I mean, Shakespeare is a wonderful author. Um, and we all have spent a lot of time studying Shakespeare. If we are in the academy in English, we've probably spent a decent amount of time if we've just been through high school. But it isn't as if Shakespeare is, is or should be untouchable. The question can still be asked. And the question basically is like, okay, justify him over any other text. And he can. And that's what, just what you have to do. But the question is, why this text? Why these sets of texts? Why, why this canon? 
right? So in short order, the canon here is being systemically and seriously historicized. People are asking why these texts, these authors, these themes, and the answers all kind of end up being, uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's the empire. Uh, that's the empire needed it. Uh, effectively, we sort of realize that, oh, this is not like handed down on, on, on stone tablets. This is, um, this is something that was made up by people who needed a good cultural history in order to have like a decent sort of like, um, de facto rule over a massive, massive empire. Um, Obviously, this answer, uh, we needed a cultural history to have, you know, control over a various set of people, wasn't particularly compelling to the people asking the questions. And so a vast critique of the canon and its omnipresence in K through 12 and college schooling began in earnest. All of a sudden, people were reading more women authors, authors of color, queer authors, etc., and new forgotten texts were being surfaced, uh, were surfacing and being discussed. And so, like, um, like the... Even even texts like again like famous texts of of like a kind of like Marxian reading practice uh, like Frank Norris or um, well let's just stick with Norris like Frank Norris right like the 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 sort of like strange naturalism of Norris did not have much of a place in the canon until this point when people are looking back and saying like oh yeah why don't we read more like Frank Norris or like hey, maybe John Updike's worth thinking about or like. Oh, Gwendolyn Brooks has all this interesting stuff that's like seems super political. Or, oh, hey, like, what's this Langston Hughes guy saying? Right? Like, this is not that people weren't reading those folks, because obviously they were, but these are, you know, some of the radical sort of class-based stuff we have as well sneaks in at this point, too. It's not this is when this is like the the, the actual sort of like should be the actual kind of textbook definition of intersectional, wherein every sort of thing is attacking the kind of like dominant class, right? The dominant class is being questioned. And so all sorts of stuff is sneaking in, which is to say not just class-based stuff, not just race-based stuff, not just gender-based stuff, but not just sexuality-based stuff, but like everything in between and those as well, right? Um, also, probably worth saying, this is maybe why all the theory people love to read is from around the 70s, 80s. Uh, it's fertile ground. You know, like a lot of people are just all of a sudden writing about these books and these ideas for the first time. Um, you know, the less said about the state of the academy today, the better. Uh, but, you know, prayers up for my friends and loved ones still in it. Um, and at this point, maybe we should take a small break. So anyway, getting back to it, the point is that a new standard of argument was needed to include texts into the canon. Uh, you know, many of these texts were already in the canon to begin with, and and many of the texts that were initially canonized uh, are still like wonderful novels, poems, and plays in their own right. Like no one, no one is going to hear me saying that we shouldn't read Shakespeare. No one's going to hear me saying that the Canterbury Tales aren't an important piece of of work to read. Right? Like there are reasons that I would include them in my own sort of like canon of literature, um, historical, cultural, um, you know, formal, whatever uh, reasons, but. I could give reasons if we were, you know, bothering to do that on this particular podcast, which since it's a solo podcast, seems like it would be a waste of time. Um, but like a lot of the, you know, the defenses of texts were happening and some of the defenses of texts were for texts that were canonized. Some weren't right. Some were arguments that this text should be here and this text shouldn't be. And this was happening. This argument was happening all around the education of students. Right. And this is why it gets to be so charged. It's all about what do kids learn? And the question of what kids learn still sort of uh, resonates in terms of like, you know, what what do I want my kids to know and how can I help them act the way I think they should act, right? 
you know, any parent in the audience is going to agree with you. That is like naturally what you think. And if you are sort of thinking about the kids as a plural, as some sort of group to guide towards, you know, whatever, uh, Christianity, patriotism, uh, you know, whatever you want to think of as sort of like a, uh, a capital L leader in America, as opposed to the lowercase L leaders, like the rest of us who would rather the kids just read what they want. Um, yeah, like uh, you're gonna, you're gonna sort of end up, um, wanting something that has a particular focus and people arguing against that focus, um, going to make you really kind of like, uh, uh, I don't know, antsy. But the basic standard of argument, right? This is a new standard of argument that has to happen with the, with the canon. And what is that standard? Well, you had to explain why, right? Why does this book belong in the canon then? Why not that one? Ultimately, more than alternative canons or defenses of the canon or outright skepticism of canonicity as a concept, all three things used like interchangeably as ways to describe the culture wars in the uh, in the 80s and 90s. It's not really about that. The thing that comes from this moment that we have to desperately hang on today is this act of asking and then answering why. Why include these things? Why take these things out? Everyone was suddenly having to answer that question, a question that was just taken as read so often prior. Right. So and this is not as many free speech warriors will tell you because we're at risk of losing John Updike and Philip Roth. And we're going to have to be forced to explain why Shakespeare is a cis male oppressor to past English 102. That's not the kind of why I really care about. The reason we need to keep why in mind is because it is the most important question any of us, you know, whether or not I agree with your cultural position or not. And rest assured, that's the only time I'll say whether I agree with it or not, because otherwise um, I am going to argue with you about it. Uh, but whether or not I agree with you, it's still the most important question we can ask about culture at present. Why does this matter? Right? Give me a good account. Why, why does it matter? Not just you like it, but why? Most early cultural criticism knew this, right? So when we start talking about cultural criticism in the 70s and 80s, uh, particularly uh, some of the stuff that seemed frivolous, right? Um, it, it knew it had to answer this question. So when scholars said we should, for instance, start reading more romance novels as pieces of academic interest, and I'm talking about the stuff at the supermarket romance novels, not like, you know, oh, we should, we should start reading Pamela. Like this is like, you know, romance novel, romance novel. Um, they gave various reasons why. They didn't take it as read that their controversial claim, we need to read more romance novels in the academy, would be accepted. Because you can argue that romance novels give a vision into the cultural unconscious of the middle class women, women and men who buy paperbacks at the grocery store. And someone can argue against that point as well. Far less can you argue against romance novels are canon and that's that. Or romance novels can never be canon and that's that. The same goes for comic books, genre film, radio drama, serialized fiction, unpopular novels, and yes, video games. There has to be what we can call a positive argument, and that is to say positive as in it posits something, not that it has to be happy, but that it actually says something that can be argued against for the inclusion of the cultural object you care about into serious study. And it may not always be because it's good literature, good art. It may be because it's popular and representative. As in the case of romance novels, almost no one was saying they should be in because of their prosody, right? Like no one, I'm sure someone might have made that claim, but like by and large, people were saying, no, 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 these are still not great books uh, from, an, from an aesthetic standpoint, but uh, understand they are important books because they give us a window into people we would not normally have a window into. You get to see inside the minds of people that are otherwise forgotten, right? That makes it important. But there always 
whether or not it's cultural, historical, aesthetic, whatever, there always has to be a why, right? In the same way that one must have a why at hand if they want to teach strict adherence to the canon. Why would it matter? Why do we want the canon now? Like, what, what does it give us? Um, yeah, don't just say it's the canon. Say why, right? So this was the question that no one had to ask when they used the canon as a cultural ruler, pulling people into line and making them learn and recite the same stories, right? It's also a useful thing when you have to ask, like, oh, you know, what are the good books to read? Or like, what books have you read? And then everyone just can say, well, they're all the books we all read in school. They're the good ones. Um, and we all know them, so we can all talk about them, right? We, we all have a shared cultural um, national heritage. But is it good to have a cultural knowledge across all people in a nation that's shared uh, by way of, of uh, top-down you know, schooling? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But you'd actually have to argue that, right? And that's the thing. You have to argue how that works and why at this point in time, or you should. Back then, it was gospel, right? And not just gospel in the way of, oh, that's gospel, but gospel literally in the way that it had the air of religious truth to it, right? It is not to be questioned. But it is so convenient to be able to say it just is the case, right? Not to ask why. And I think it's this convenience and, you know, not what I think a lot of people see is this more sinister flattening of cultural consumption that we see corporations, uh, you know, active, actively doing. Like, I do think corporations want to flatten culture so that, you know, they can make a bunch of movies that we all, you know, eat up and they don't really have to think about hiring writers and, you know, directors or whatever. They just can kind of produce stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm as critical as the superhero movie as, as anyone this side of, of old Scorsese himself, who I happen to agree with. But the thing is, I don't think the fans necessarily are doing that. People can be blinkered to their own stuff, but I doubt many fans on Twitter who are arguing that, you know, Thor Ragnarok is anti-imperialist are doing so, you know, in the knowing interest of capital or something like that. Right. Like I'm not, I'm not going to make that argument because it's just, it's kind of silly. Like it, it, if they're arguing in the interest of capital, it happens to be incidental, right? They think they're making a good point and they're making some sort of argument in their own mind, but they're making it with the extraordinarily, the extraordinary convenience of not having to say why, right? These are the threads people uh, produce that we see on Twitter, right? Um, Thor Ragnarok is anti-colonial. Why is it anti-colonial? I'm not sure. It has some myths and a person of color who directed it, uh, and that seems to be enough. Uh, WandaVision is abstract art that we all need to consume to understand the the world of COVID uh, and and you know the, the the sort of like you know distanced and and uh, hard world we all live in now. Why? Well, I, people are talking about it. We're still under COVID. It's a uh, it's it's kind of like a little weird without being too weird, right? So so it can be talked about. That is that seems to be enough. Uh, even champions of like wonderful shows like Twin Peaks, one of my very favorite shows, have made this into a refrain, this lack of asking why. We all know Twin Peaks is good television and important because we all know Twin Peaks is good television and important. We don't have to give a reason why, right? We've made cultural argument into a tautology. What is this? That is to say an obvious philosophical answer. And many people would cite the cultural criticism they read in college as a way they began to take their hobbies and interests seriously as an object of academic study. But these cultural... Uh, these cultural studies that they read in college always asked the question why they were much, much more rigorous, careful, and brave in asking these hard questions of media they liked, right? The missing why distinguishes Twitter threads from serious cultural analysis. It's not the people doing it or the subjects or whatever. I'm not going to make that claim. That's a little elitist and, and that's not my position. 
it is the why. The fact that they're not asking why it it, it distinguishes them um, from you know serious cultural analysis, film, literary criticism. Right, the fiery challenges to the canon on the bounds of race, gender, sexuality, form, popularity at all are good because they are careful and challenging and provocative and aggressively aggressively argumentative. Your bell hooks or Edward Said or Jose Munoz or Donna Haraway, etc aren't just saying you should read this because it's good and I like it and you know someone I think is good wrote it. They're arguing about how and why culture works. They're making an epistemological, an aesthetic, and a historical claim. And so this brings me back to games, right? I'm thinking about how we talk about games in 2021. Almost entirely, games criticism is about whether or not you like a game. Almost never why the game deserves to be discussed or thought about, right? The idea of a good game that doesn't require analysis or a bad game that could produce some interesting problems to work through is beyond the pale for most people, right? And I'll confess to this. Like, when people don't like games I like, I get worried. Um, but it's okay if they don't like games I like if they have something interesting to say about them and, and vice versa. If I don't like games they like but they have something interesting to say about the game they like, that's fine. It's this interesting thing to say. It's not the art itself or whether or not it's good or bad in, in a an enjoyable or even a moral sense. It is, in fact, a sense of is the art – can we talk about the art in any sort of meaningful way? Um, it's because no one's asking the why that we get to this point. And some people are. And I've had a lot of them on the show and I'll have more of them on the show to, to come with. But if you think about the majority of games criticism – no one is asking the why. We're just saying the game is good or the game is bad, tacking an aesthetic or cultural claim on top of it, right? The Last of Us 2 is a great game because it's fun to play. Oh, but also there's there's um, crunch on it. So it's, you know, there's a there's a sense of, of uh, bad class vibes on that too. Bad labor vibes. So the game itself, I like it. Um, I haven't played it, so I'm just, I, whatever. But the game itself, I like it, or I don't like it. And then on top of it saying, oh, and, and the labor situation is bad, right? That's just the news. That's not an aesthetic claim. That's not a philosophical claim. That's just the news. Yes, Naughty Dog should get all the critique, all the criticism it's gotten and more, and that's, you know, totally fine. Uh, but it doesn't count as a why the game is good or the game is bad. That's a different question and in some ways a harder question, Right. Um, and so what I want to finally do this year is really ask the question of why it matters that we talk about video games. I've, I've like the, the whole podcast is premised on this idea that it matters to talk about video games. I still think it does. I, I don't think I'm going to come to the conclusion that it doesn't, but I want to kind of try and work out why, right? It can't just be because no one else is doing it or few people are doing it the way I want them to, right? That can't be the answer. And it can't be because I say they needs a leftist position there. Why does it need a leftist position? And, you know, these are big questions that I, you know, I'll confess I have not answered. I think it's an aesthetic problem, but maybe you think it's a cultural one. Maybe you think it's a historical one. Maybe you think it's purely a material one. Maybe you think video games are helpful distractions that can keep us primed for uh, moments of stress in, uh, in, you know, like class revolt. Or maybe you think they are distractions that take us away from class revolt. There are all sorts of things you can think about this that aren't, you know, it's aesthetic. And all of that is okay, but we need to start making claims like this again, claims that are bold and can be argued and have a kind of like, you know, bravery to them insofar as they say, hey, this is what I think about this. Um, it might make something I like a little less important to me down the line, but this is what I think. 
right? We need to start making these claims again, not only about games, but about all of culture. Because completely flattened art that we all like and don't care about one way or the other, we just kind of enjoy or, you know, it gets us through the day. It's in many ways much more pernicious than bad art. It's the death of intellectual consumption. And at the risk of being too earnest, we need to push back against it as best we can by defining our own terms aggressively and fully before we just become tautological warriors arguing about stuff we like and don't like ad nauseum on the internet. So it's my hope I can have some people back on the show. I can have some new people on. I can ask people about what makes something art, what makes it important, what makes it aesthetically interesting, uh, whether they care about video games as objects of art or objects of history or somewhere in between. All of these questions, and I'm hoping to spend the next you know 12 months, so February to February, I guess March to March at this point, um, asking these questions. And hopefully we can do another year after that too, but I really want to refocus around this now. I really am hoping you will come along uh, with me on this. Uh, same new cartridge you've known all along, except with a slightly more focused uh, bent, and I think it's going to produce some really fun stuff. So, um, you know, this, of course, isn't limited to just the main show. I'll be, you know, thinking through this lens and no wall scroll as well as we have many times, uh, Piss and I. And, you know, the news, uh, John and I tend to talk a lot about, like, why this stuff matters um, uh, in, in patch notes. Uh, Liv and I will often talk about, like, the ways that uh, these things mean to us personally, which is another kind of level of why that I think we need to start talking about again. Um, you know, I, none of this is, is, is anything new, but it is something that I'm hoping to make a little more explicit. So keep an eye on the, on the feed here. Um, I'm hoping to switch to a Monday, Wednesday, Friday posting schedule. Um, I think probably it will be something like, uh, um, Monday, no wall scroll Wednesday main show and Friday, uh, to end the week up and, and get you some news, some pa uh, patch notes. Uh, but we'll see how that goes. Um, Patreon to patreon.com slash no cartridge. There are shirts for sale. Um, at Teespring, just uh, look up No Cartridge on there and you'll find them. Um, yeah, no, I, I think uh, I think this is um, mainly what I wanted to say. And uh, I hope you all are excited to see where this goes. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for listening to No Cartridge. If you'd like to support us further, please consider going to patreon.com slash nocartridge or for a one-time donation, paypal.me slash hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. It's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make the show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts um, and, and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to.